This is Finally Free, a podcast for those sick of battling their bodies, sick of fearing food and the number on the scale, sick of punishing exercise all in the pursuit of diet culture's version of health and wellness. I'm Alana Vandersloos, a certified intuitive eating counselor, eating disorder survivor, and the founder of Freedom with Food and Fitness, where I offer group coaching for women who are ready to heal their relationship with food in their bodies and become their healthiest, happiest, most confident selves without ever having to go on another diet. On this podcast, you will hear me answer your biggest questions around how to become a successful intuitive eater. You'll hear inspiring stories of other women on their food freedom journeys, those who are recovering, those who are recovered, and those who are helping others to do the same. I'll teach you how to quiet that incessant voice in your head telling you you're not enough, how to find peace and satisfaction with food again, how to embrace the one and only body you have with fitness you enjoy so you can move through this world with confidence. Are you ready to be finally free? Before we get started, I want to remind you of everything I have to offer with Freedom with Food and Fitness. First, I offer group coaching. My 10-week intuitive eating coaching program is called Defy the Diet, and it blends intuitive eating principles and mindset work in a hybrid format that blends group and private coaching to give my clients amazing results. My summer cohort client, Adriana, had this to say about me as a coach. Alana's helped me develop a healthy relationship with food and helped me to uncover the root causes of my disordered eating. She's very open and honest about her own struggles in her journey, which empower me and the other ladies in the group to have deep conversations about the challenges and pressures we face from diet culture in our society. Uh, it's testimonials like that that seriously make everything I do for my clients worth every second. If you're someone who wants true mental and physical health without restriction and obsession, stop overeating. Find consistency in nutrition, movement, and self-care, and take the guilt out of wellness, this program is for you. If you're ready for your ticket to food freedom, we have rolling admission into the program, but since we offer the program only four times a year, we can only enroll people into a certain cohort by a certain date. So if you want to get into the program ASAP, fill out an application and schedule a call with me at freedomwithfoodandfitness.com slash discover. We'll talk all about your current struggles, flesh out those goals, and create a clear step-by-step roadmap we'll travel together to finally get you to those goals. We have a brand new coach coming on board and five new Defy the Diet package options to help make this program more supportive than ever. An insanely effective program tailored to your needs and budget. Spots that include one-to-one coaching are limited, so again, go to freedomwithfoodandfitness.com slash discover to apply today. If you're not quite ready for coaching, check me out on Instagram at Freedom with Food and Fitness. There, I have exclusive blog posts, free intuitive eating worksheets and videos, and so much more. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Caniglio. Catherine is a PhD candidate and National Science Foundation graduate research fellow in clinical psychology at Rutgers University studying eating disorders. She has authored over 25 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters in academic textbooks and has presented her research at national and international conferences. Her program of research explores ways to improve detection of pathological exercise, as well as ways to help folks in recovery from eating disorders re-engage in exercise in an adaptive, sustained way. 
She has worked as a clinician in both behavioral medicine settings and in eating disorder treatment settings, and was continually struck by the vastly diverging viewpoints that each of these camps has about exercise. In primary healthcare settings, exercise is often prescribed with a more is always better attitude, whereas eating disorder clinicians are often very skeptical of exercise. Her entire program of research explores this gray area that exists in between these two extremes. I hope you guys really, really enjoy this conversation with Catherine. I thought it was so eye-opening. Enjoy. All right, Catherine, let's let's start off the way that I always start off uh, with all of my guests on the podcast is um, I know you told me that you didn't experience an eating disorder firsthand, but what was your relationship to food, your body and your weight growing up? Yeah, so I was a swimmer for um, since I was nine uh, all the way through my senior year of college. Um, and I think that you know, there's a couple of reasons why I'm really interested in eating disorders. But when I think back, that probably sort of sowed the seeds a little bit right from the beginning where I was in a sport that your body is very visible, especially, you know, as a girl, woman going through sort of the way your body changes and, and it's very vulnerable to be, you know, in a bathing suit, especially at co-ed swim meets and things like that. Um, and I think that there was a lot of uh, implicit focus on the way that you look, the way, like what, what you're eating, you know, you're at these swim meets all day, you have to eat, um, you know, and I think coaches in the best way that they know how, you know, I haven't really ever had a coach be um, harmful, but there's just a lot of focus on what you're eating, how you look, and it's thought to be connected to how well you do in the pool. Um, and I think that, that that's um, where my interest, not only in eating disorders, but also in exercise specifically really came from. Sure. And I'm sure that there's, because it's a competitive sport, I'm sure implicit in that is the competitive nature of coming across as an athlete and comparing not only your swim time, but comparing your bodies, comparing what you eat to your competitors or your teammates. So even if somebody's not explicitly telling you, you need to eat this, you need to look like this, the competitive nature of the sport, I think, bleeds over into the rest of it. Definitely. And, and even, um, you know, even if it's not coming from a place of restriction necessarily, I think there's a lot of emphasis on eating, um, I don't want to say clean, but I guess like in a really sort of specific exact way where you're encouraged to really monitor, you know, exactly how much protein and, you know, fats and where those fats are coming from. And it, it, uh, invites a very compulsive, uh, type of person. And then I think it sort of like capitalizes on that. So yeah, definitely to the competitive nature, you know, you want to make sure that you're fueling your body the right way after, you know, the meat is done or practice is done. And it, it definitely like you sort of view every element of your life, whether it's fitness and food in terms of like, how can I make sure that I'm putting myself in the best position to get that extra 0.01 second on my race? Right. And I'm sure I was never uh, a competitive athlete. I did dance, but never competitively. And I feel like 
and, and you tell me as, as someone who is a competitive swimmer, does that foster uh, a sense of perfectionism? Absolutely. And I think just like I said before, the, the fact that it's really a game of hundredths and tenths of seconds, it, it's sort of, um, you know, the way that we practice, it's like every single thing that you do counts, the exact way that you move through the water. And, you know, we would put on these like super tech racing suits in order to get like that extra 0.1 second or whatever to qualify for the next meet. And so when you have a sport that is so, and I'm sure it's that way in dance too, where if you don't sort of, you know, like every element of the, the sport is, is, um, uh, like scrutinized for yeah. you know, looking and, and doing the exact right thing. So I think it, it definitely does invite some perfectionism. And I think the way, um, you know, I think for some people like the, the perfectionism gene or trait might be varying levels to start with, but then when they start a sport like swimming or dance, it, it, uh, has the potential to, be the catalyst that really invites like a pathological level of perfectionism that then gets in the way for them for the rest of their lives, even when the sport's done. Absolutely. And that's something that I've kind of spoken about on Instagram, this whole idea of I'm a recovering perfectionist. That's how I like to see it. And I think that, as you said, some of us have uh, a genetic propensity to be high achieving. Maybe there's a little bit of OCD in there and events in our life can trigger or exacerbate those traits within us. And I like to say there's like, there's like a shadow side to every trait. And I think if you, some, you're, if you're someone who gravitates toward high, ach high achievement and perfectionism, it could go one of two ways. You could be just a very healthy high achiever or the shadow side to that is this crippling perfectionism, which is, which is what happened to me, which is what led to my eating disorder is I let, I let that trait take over because I wasn't managing my mind around it. Yeah. I love the way you said that the shadow side, it reminds me of something my dad always said growing up, which is that your strengths to excess are your weaknesses. Oh, and I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love the way you said it too, though, the shadow side, because it's so true. And it actually even you know, in the clients that I see when we're working on eating disorder recovery, I really like to focus on how, you know, this trait that maybe we're trying to get to the bottom of or sort of reduce like perfectionism, I always highlight that it, it actually helped them in so many different ways in their life. And so it's not that, you know, we're trying to get rid of everything and change everything about someone's personality. It's that we need to notice like when this trait has become something that is getting out of control, but that not to get do away with the trait completely, but just redirect it in a way that's more helpful. That's fantastic. So, so using someone's inherent strength, seeing how they've been maybe abusing that strength into a weakness and figuring how to um, cultivate and use it for their recovery, as opposed to making their situation worse. Could you maybe speak to, obviously not naming a client out, we keep everything confidential, but um, can you maybe give an example of how you've done that with a client and how maybe somebody else could start making that shift? Yeah, you know, I think the the strategy that I use that, um, you know, at the beginning of every kind of treatment, I always help the client make a map of how their eating disorder works. So it's, you know, behaviors that tend to show up, 
thoughts that tend to show up when they're doing those behaviors and we sort of disassemble this map so that we can um, you know, tackle symptoms one by one because it sometimes feels like you know you don't really know where to start. But when it comes to exercise, the the I can think of a couple of clients in particular where you know they've said I really love to do hard things. I love to challenge myself. But then the the way that that will show up for them is only in the context of pushing themselves to the extreme, you know, in the gym or exercising in a way that's harmful to their health or is becoming harmful to their health. And so we can retain that sense of like loving to do hard things and loving to challenge yourself, but to try to learn a new language or to try, you know, even if it's activity related, maybe like trying a, a hike with your friends that's not, you know, you by yourself pushing yourself to the point of exhaustion, but rather finding a way that you can still challenge yourself, but that's more in line with your other values. Um, yeah. I love that, that idea of a mind map so that people can actually in front of them visualize mm -hmm. and see not only kind of where the eating disorder is stemming from, but the different behaviors that, that mm -hmm. it's manifesting. What a great exercise, that's fantastic. I really yeah, it, it tends to kind of look almost like a house of cards a little bit uh, where, you know, if you can find a couple of symptoms or behaviors that really are the key cogs in the wheel that keep everything going. And if you can tackle those, sometimes the rest just sort of falls away. You know, this really comes from um, Chris Fairburn's um, cognitive behavioral therapy for, for eating disorders. And it, it really is this idea that, you know, if you can tackle a couple of, you know, it might seem like, you know, I wonder if your listeners, as I'm saying, this might be like, gosh, my, you know, the symptoms I'm struggling with are, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start, but if you can just sort of pick one or two things that tend to show up a lot, I think people will be surprised how much better they feel quickly. That's so fantastic. Um, the last thing I want to touch upon, um, even though we kind of got away from it a little bit, I, I think it's really important, is a lot of my clients, when they first come to me, I don't, they don't realize that they actually have a problem. They think it's like so normal to be dieting and have these food rules, and they don't realize that their relationship with eating is disordered because it's common. We see it all the time, but I try to say it like what's common is not normal. Like what you're experiencing is not normal. Um, so there's a definite difference between having an eating disorder and being a disordered eater. So I think um, what it sounds like what you would experience as a swimmer, there were some food rules and maybe some disordered patterns. So can you speak to, even though you're not somebody who had a, an eating disorder firsthand, can you speak to some of the things that you, you did experience as a swimmer or that your teammates experienced as swimmers that was disordered? Sure. Yeah. And just to speak first to what you said before, you know, I, I totally agree and about how the, the metaphor that I always give my clients is that, um, you know, perhaps like, it's almost like I'm sending you out into the ocean with like a scuba suit, right? Like I, I'm not trying to get rid of the ocean of all of the, you know, inundation of disordered eating patterns and, you know, focus on body image. And it's that in no other um, 
no other type of sort of something that you might see a therapist for, do you then leave the therapy office and are just slapped in the face with all of the different ways that this message shows up? So I always, um, I love the way you put that, too, that just because it's common doesn't mean um, that it's normal. So I totally agree. Uh, yeah, so swimming, I um, I think that the, the it was, it was common to comment on people looking lean. That was a word that um, coaches and other swimmers would use. I, I think that it meant that, you know, obviously calling someone thin or, you know, it was maybe a little bit more overtly frowned upon. And so they would use these synonyms that felt a little bit more acceptable, like lean. That's the one that jumps out to me the most. Um, yeah, you know, uh, wanting to make sure that you were like the person that was ordering like the smaller suit size, feeling embarrassed if, you know, when the coach would come around for ordering those tech suits that I talked about before, there was a sense that like, oh, well, you know, you're a size this. So I, I think we're about the same. So I'll put myself down for that size too, even if you knew that you were a better size, um, things like that. And it's sneaky. So it's not always, you know, I've been on several teams and I can't think of one where it was, you know, to the untrained eye, it might seem like there wasn't a focus on eating or body image, but it would show up in these ways that were a little bit more subtle that were just more ingrained in the culture. Sure, sure. So um, moving on to kind of like what you do and what you specialize in, um, you, you were talking to me earlier about pathological or maladaptive exercise and what that is. And is there a better term to use one or the other? So can you define pathological or maladaptive exercise to us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the way that the eating disorders research field has treated exercise has been really interesting to follow for the past couple of decades or so. It used to be that the word excessive was the term that everybody used to describe exercise. It was excessive exercise. And no one really had a shared definition for how much is too much exercise. Um, but then more importantly, this new way of thinking came about, which is that maybe it's not the amount of exercise that someone's doing, but rather if it's compulsive. And by that, I mean, if, if someone feels so driven to do it, even if the amount is small, if someone feels like, you know, I, I cannot go about my day or I can't go meet up with my friends if I haven't done like my two mile run or something like that. Um, and so I prefer the term pathological or mal maladaptive really is I think my preferred term just to describe any exercise that's getting in the way for you in your life, whether it's interfering with your health, you know, feeling still compelled to exercise, even though you're injured. Um, and it doesn't matter so much if, it, if it's excessive. And I think that's the important piece that, you know, um, other healthcare providers might miss, uh, potential problem with exercise if the amount when they ask someone, you know, at their annual physical, oh, how much exercise, you know, if the exercise is not, if the amount isn't jumping out at them as being like a concerning amount, I think the, the compulsive or the maladaptive nature often gets missed. And then just like you're saying, people might say, but it's common, you know, all my friends do this too. I don't see that I have a problem. Um, and no one, if no one else is, is, perhaps suggesting that they have a problem, it's easy to miss. So that's really my area of interest is how can we 
be better at detecting pathological exercise so that it, you know, not totally dissuading people from exercising at all, but how can we sort of course correct so that they can still engage with exercise, but in a way that's really healthy and, and makes them happy and makes their life better and makes them feel fulfilled and energized and not, you know, putting them in this prison and feeling like, oh, I have to do this or else I, you know, don't, I can't even focus on, you know, going about my day. Right, right. And that's, that's part of my niche too, the freedom of food and fitness. I want, I want people to be able to have that fitness piece, unless it's, you know, you know, maybe they need to take a break. If that was like the crux of the eating disorder, there's a lot of like exercise bulimia and things like that. But I like, I I too like maladaptive because I'm also, I'm also a high school English teacher. Like that's like Mm -hmm. my my day job. So Mm -hmm. for maladaptive, it means, you know, adapting poorly. So you're taking something that is supposed to be really wonderful for us and our health um, and, and we're, we're not adapting it properly. We are turning it into something that is, that is a problem. And as you said, I think what's more concerning than how much somebody is exercising is the reasons why and what, what else they're sacrificing in their life. And are they sacrificing their mental health for this, uh, for this goal that they have of their fitness. And, you know, something that you said to me really, uh, resonated personally is that when I was in my eating disorder, for many of those years, not all of them, some of them I was underweight, but for some of them, I was a normal weight. So when I went to my doctor and they would weigh me, there was never this concern that I had an eating disorder because it was not so much a physical manifestation, but a mental one. And nobody was asking me about that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that from the people that I see. And you know, it's the, the base rate in the population of people who are underweight with an eating disorder is actually lower than it's, it's low relative to sort of other psychological, um, problems, but the, the base rate of people who have, you know, disordered eating and just like what you're saying, the mental component, but perhaps not the physical is much, much greater, but we just don't have a really reliable way of detecting it. And so there's so many people that then go without the care that they need. And, and we then wait until they get sicker to treat them, which prognostically is not a good way to approach this, but you're exactly right that we need to be better at detecting people who may be in need of help before it gets to the point where they're really in trouble health-wise. Sure. So can we, um, can we list uh, a couple of ways that people could maybe see if they are somebody who is experiencing maladaptive exercise? Like what are the traits, uh, just like a nice comprehensive list of a couple? Yeah, definitely. So the first thing that I always ask people is, you know, how do they feel or how, how would they feel if they miss an exercise session? So, you know, you're running late from work, you miss the class that you signed up for. Are you disappointed or are you in tears? You know, there's a big difference between, you know, are you kind of bummed or, or maybe even annoyed at your boss or are you, you know, spiraling? That's a, a common um, scenario that I give people, like walk me through what that looks like. Um, are you exercising even when you're injured? You know, you, you have a, a sprained ankle and doctor says, you know, no running for two weeks. Are you trying to run anyway? Or are you resting and taking care of your body? Um, does your social life 
revolve around exercising. So are, are all of your friends from your gym or, you know, some other group and that's like all you do and all you talk about, or do you have a more varied social life and the things that you do and talk about when you're together? Um, you know, is exercise your only form of coping with stress? If you have a, uh, issue at work or, or a relationship issue, you know, are you immediately headed out for a super long run or do you have other ways to manage your stress and your anxiety? If it's raining or used to, you know, kind of things like that, that maybe, maybe not all of these things on the list resonated, but it, if one or two are like, oh, that, you know, that kind of sounds like me, you know, don't worry. It, it's not, you know, we, we can, we can help, there's ways to help, but I think that that's sort of some of the sneakier um, traits that tend to show up that are more easily missed if, if you're not, again, someone who's exercising an amount that if you told a doctor, they would have some concern about. Sure, sure. And it's funny that you say that because I was probably exercising an hour a day, six times a day when I was in my eating disorder, which sounds to some like just kind of, again, quote unquote normal, but I'll never forget this. Hurricane, Hurricane Sandy was coming to New York and it was like literally in the middle of it. And I was like, and and the gym was closed because a hurricane was coming and there was like a state of emergency. And I was like, no, I have to go out for a run. So I was running. There were like tree branches, like whizzing past my face. Like mm-hmm. how disordered must my mind have been to be like, mm-hmm. no, I need to go for a run in an actual hurricane. So yeah. that's, that's a yeah. perfect example. And, and to that, I always say, you know, to have people validate themselves that it makes sense that you wanted to go out for a run because that was the only way that your brain knew to help you feel less anxious. Right. So it, it makes sense. And it, it's a perfect example because it, you know, now you're in a place where you can step back and, and realize how, you know, disordered that was, but, but I, it's, it's important to validate for yourself too. For sure. Now, so if someone wants to re-engage with exercise in a way that, let, let's say they have an eating disorder in a way that supports their eating disorder recovery and their overall mental health without, you know, inadvertently creating conditions for that eating disorder to return, what would we say to them? What are some actionable strategies? Yeah. So the, there's a really interesting research coming out now around um, this idea that there is sort of three categories that if, if you can check the box on all of them, probably you're in a really, you have a really healthy relationship with exercise. And just for your listeners who may be familiar, this comes from a theory called self-determination theory, which says that to, to be intrinsically motivated to do anything, whether it's exercise or, or any, any other behavior, um, there's three conditions that need to be met. And so it's, uh, do you feel competent in the activity? Meaning, do you know how to do it? And, you know, you, you have all the skills. Um, do you feel autonomous? Meaning you yourself are the one that wants to do this. You're not doing it because you feel guilty or to, you know, change how you look to make other people happy. Um, you're not, you know, it's, it's you, you alone that, that you want to do this. A side note is that this, I think, is the piece that's trickiest for people with eating disorders, which is that sometimes their eating disorder voice is the one motivating the exercise and not their own voice. And that's that's really tricky to, to parse out. Um, and then the third one is, do you feel a sense of relatedness to others? Meaning when you do this, you feel like you have other people in your life that um, 
or when, when you do the activity, it, it increases your sense of community and things like that. Um, so there's, there's interesting research that if you can check the box on all three, um, your relationship to exercise is perhaps much healthier and more adaptive than people who, you know, might not feel like they are doing this for autonomous reasons and they're doing it, you know, to avoid, avoiding guilt is I think the big one that, you know, people may not exercise to increase positive emotion, but rather to alleviate negative emotion. And that's the, that tends to be the piece that I spend the longest time in, in my work with people to try to parse out. Absolutely. Now, now this, this question is an interesting one because you, you wanted me to, to, to ask you about this and then it kind of piqued my interest on it. So you mm-hmm. said that you're working on a project where you're investigating what people are thinking about when they exercise. Mm-hmm. And that's so fascinating. Can you, can you tell me more about that project? Because okay. you're taking something physical, but you're looking at the, the, the cognitive genesis mm-hmm. of it all. So tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually, this is for my, my dissertation. And I, I just um, started to look at the results a couple of weeks ago. But what I, what I can tell you so far is that the reason why I was really interested in this is that just like I said earlier, you know, looking at the amount and the type that someone exercises doesn't really give us the full picture. So the idea really came from uh, some of the self-talk literature in like sports psychology, looking at what athletes are telling themselves while they exercise. Um, And what what I know so far from the data is, you know, I followed a group of people over three weeks and I asked them to tell me every time they exercise, they use their smartphone to tell me what they were thinking about while they exercise. And it looks so far like thinking about weight loss while you're exercising then later predicts um, other disordered eating behaviors later that same day. And the one that's jumping out the most is body checking. So if you're thinking about losing weight while you're exercising, as opposed to how much you like what you're doing, you know, that you're getting better at it, that you enjoy, you know, your teammates, if you're exercising in a group, um, if you're thinking only about, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to lose weight and it's going to be great, then you're much more likely then to go and stare at yourself in the mirror and, and really have a lot of really negative thoughts about the way that you look. So maybe it, you know, if we can help people redirect their mind while they exercise, they're going to be able to still do the kind of exercise that they like to do, but just change, you know, their mindset about it rather than changing their behavior. That's so fascinating. And it makes so much sense, but to hear it said that, you know, said that way and also have like the science and the research to back it up. That is so great. Yeah. So I, I mean, I always say this is like 90% thought work, like managing your thoughts and emotions. And if we can come, if we can approach exercise with a different mindset, that is not weight loss, we might be able to mitigate those other behaviors as well. That's fantastic. What great work. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to doing some more research with that. So stay tuned. <laughs> so, uh, two more questions. I can't believe it's already, you know, our time. Um, what's a strategy that listeners can take away to help self-reflect on, on those motivations for exercise? Yeah, I think probably the first one is, uh, sort of answering for yourself those questions I posed earlier about, you know, how might you be able to tell whether exercise is becoming a problem for you? Um, And then, you know, the second one is really sit and ask yourself what, 
what about exercise do you like? You know, do you, do you enjoy challenging yourself to do something hard? And if so, is there another way that you can have that, you know, retain that value, but, but carry it out in a different way? You know, is it that you love the music, but you're actually picking a type of exercise that's really punishing and doesn't have music. So maybe you try Zumba, you know, instead of going on a run with no headphones, you know, do you love to feel really mindful? So maybe you try yoga instead of, you know, picking something again, that's really punishing and painful. Um, so I think that there's uh, a lot of self-reflection that can happen, but I think that if you really think about what's the key element of, of exercise and, and movement that you enjoy and and then look at how, how you're actually exercising during the week. And I think people might be surprised that they don't always match up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And my last question, because the podcast is called finally free podcast. What does it mean to you to be finally free? Yeah. You know, I think that when you can, and I'll speak specifically to exercise since that's sort of my area when you can be in a place where you are choosing the kind of exercise day to day that really makes you feel happy and fulfilled and you're able to stop when you want, start when you want, you know, and, and really know that you're the one dictating those choices and not your eating disorder. I think at least as far as exercise, that's what it means to be free of any other restraints put on by the eating disorder. That's awesome. Catherine, thank you so much. Everything, actually, if you want to really quick, it's going to be in the show notes, but just so everyone can hear, where can we find you in your work? Sure. Yeah. So my, I'm on Twitter. It's K-A Caniglio. Uh, and that's more, um, you know, talk more about eating sort of research there. And then on Instagram, I have an Instagram called bite-sized. It's B-I-T-E-P-S-Y-Z-E-D. So sci like psychology. Um, and there I really try to make it very accessible to people who maybe don't have a research background. And I, I talk about research from all different domains of psychology, not just eating disorders. Um, so I encourage people to check that one out as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Alana. Thanks so much for having me. So that is it for today's episode. Seriously, of all the podcasts you can be listening to, I'm so honored that you took the time to listen to mine. I'm also so proud of you for taking this small step forward toward food and body freedom. If you like what you hear and you want to work with me as your coach, go to freedomwithfoodandfitness.com to schedule a free 15-minute discovery call. That way I can hear your specific needs and set up a game plan for your success. I would also be so, so grateful if you could subscribe, follow, rate, and review this podcast so many more people who need help with dieting, body image, disordered eating, and fitness can find our message of freedom. Until next time.